If we haven't met before, my name is Ashley and I'm the senior pastor here. And our Roots series is all about living a deeply formed life of relationships and rhythms that are rooted in the ways of Jesus. We're pulling up roots from culture. We're pulling up roots from our family that, that don't serve us, that aren't in alignment with what God says. And we're putting down roots in his truth and Jesus. Colossians 2.6 says, just as you trusted Christ to save you, trust him too for each day's problems. I love that. That's what Amy was talking about. I trusted him for salvation, but then I trusted him with everything else. It says, live in vital union with him. Verse 7, let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him. See that you go on growing in the Lord and become strong and vigorous in the truth you were taught. And that's exactly what she did, and that's how our faith works. We don't just trust Jesus for, Jesus, save me, you know, for one day. No, we don't compartmentalize our faith. We say, Jesus, I want you to be a part of my whole life. I invite you into every area. Come on. Jesus, I invite you into my home, into my work, into church, into my family, into my rhythms. And as we do that, he helps us to grow and our roots are that relationship with God that people don't see, but it produces fruit that everyone notices. And today we're talking about inviting Jesus into our relationships. And I'm calling this message, Singleness, Soulmates, and Sex. Come on. That's right. We all respond differently, especially when I say the S word. Which one you're guessing? Sex. Some of you were like, can this chair swallow me up? That would be great. Others of you were like, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Let's go. I'm ready. If you have kids in here under age 12, you might want to take them to Hope Kids today. I'm telling you, we're going to be talking about sex, and it's PG. I practiced this morning in here with my kids this message, and um, there were some parts of it that I didn't say in front of them. They're five and seven, and there are some things that you know, we're not ready to talk about until we're ready to talk about them. And to be honest, I didn't really want to preach this message. Is it hot in here? <laughs> but I have a burden from God that if the church is silent on this topic, our children will settle for relationships that are just surviving. Yeah. Come on. So we're going to be talking about all the things today. And there's something for everyone. If you're single, don't feel like this isn't for you. It is. There are so many things in here that are going to help your life too. My son Ryder started kindergarten a few weeks ago, and he's so sweet. Every day he talks about the little girl who sits next to me. And it's kind of like Charlie Brown where he talks about the little red-haired girl. Because Ryder doesn't know her name. He's just like, the girl who sits next to me. Oh, she was so nice today. The little girl who sits next to me, she's so pretty. You know, I told the little girl who sits next to me that I want to marry her. <laughs> and it's adorable. And I said, well, when you're mature enough, she also gets to choose if she wants to marry you or not. So we'll see what happens. Parents, our kids learn about relationships from us. They have about 18 years to watch and learn and see what we do but not just what we do, also the why behind what we do, the vision for our sexuality. And if we don't talk about this stuff, they're going to learn it from culture. 
And culture's definition of love is always changing. I mean, what it was when I was in high school is completely different than what it is today. And it's changing because it has no foundation. God's love, his word, is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his principles translate across cultures, come on, across seasons, across locations. He's the truth that we're anchoring on. He's the truth that we teach. And he's interested in every part of our lives because he loves us. And if you're feeling weird about talking about this today, I would just ask him, God, why do I feel weird about that? I mean, I didn't feel weird when Pastor Ash was talking about work and rest and family. God, help me to see what is the hang-up for me around this topic. We've been looking at Romans 12.1 about orienting our whole life around God, our eating, sleeping, going to work life, not just our church life, not just our family life, but our singleness, our marriages, and our sex lives. Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in the Old Testament, God's people would offer animal sacrifices to him. They would bring him their very best lamb, you know, spotless, perfect, and they'd be like, God, this is for you. And they, they wouldn't just take like, oh, the one that's about to die, you know, the one that's got like three legs and they're like dragging along the mangy one. No, they gave him their best. And the best that we have when God loves us is to love him back, is to offer ourselves back to him, to say, God, I worship you with every part of my life. Come on. I want to follow you with the whole thing. Verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's saying, don't conform to the roots that you've always seen or known, but be transformed by God's word. Let him transform you from the inside out. So our culture says, worship your body. Obsess over your body. Post about your body on Instagram. And do the same thing with other people's bodies. And it separates our soul and our spirit from our body. And oftentimes, you know, that's, that's one side of the pendulum. The other side is the church swings the pendulum the other way. And we say, don't talk about our bodies. That's taboo. It takes what's holy and it makes it seem like, is it dirty? I'm not supposed to talk about it. Focuses on what not to do. But the Bible says that you are reverently made with awe. Psalm 139, 13, it says, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Don't call what God says is wonderful dirty. The word wonderful here means that you are distinct. There's not another you. You're one of a kind. You're handcrafted. You're surpassingly extraordinary. That's what God says about you. He was intentional with you, and he doesn't make mistakes. You're this tall because he's like, I have a purpose for that. You're this short because he has a reason. Our bodies are a part of the way that we experience our humanity. And we have limitations, and we have needs. We have things that God put within us. He gave us the ability to taste food and enjoy it. We see beautiful sunsets. We experience the fresh smell after a spring rain. We hear amazing music. We connect 
with loving touch. You know, that's when newborn babies are born, why they do skin-to-skin contact with their mom. Because touch is so important. I was reading this week, and it's not in my notes, but I was reading this week that there's this whole industry now of professional cuddlers. These are people in cities that other people pay to cuddle them. Because we're a culture that is sex-obsessed but touch-deprived. We need healthy physical contact. God designed us for it. Come on. Our bodies tell us when we need to rest. They tell us when we're stressed. And they tell us when we feel safe. And we need to listen to our bodies. But at the same time, we don't give in to every want, desire, and appetite. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Throughout the course of our lives, we wrestle with the story of our bodies. Our bodies are subject to the fall. That means that they decay. You know, eventually our bodies pass away. Every body has a story of pain and pleasure, of love or abuse. Our bodies are how we worship God. We raise our hands as a sign of surrender and wanting to be held by God. We dance. We jump. Your body's not everything, and it's not nothing either. Jesus lived in a body. He experienced everything that we go through and more. His body was how he carried out his purpose. His body was broken and beaten for us. His body paid the price on the cross so that we could have a relationship with God. And his body heals the broken places in our bodies. Come on, he gave his life for us so that we can carry out our purpose. And when you trust in Jesus, God puts his Holy Spirit in your body. Isn't that amazing? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You're valuable. You're so valuable that God shows you to house a part of himself. Some of you walked in here today thinking that you don't matter. You believed a lie, a root, that you're not worthy of love, that you're an outcast, that you don't fit in, that there's something wrong with you. Maybe you carry shame, and you've never verbalized it, but deep down, there's that feeling that you're worthless, that you're too much, or you're not enough. You're too far gone. And you've adopted coping mechanisms to survive. You've figured out how to stay alive and to numb your pain through some really hard things that you shouldn't have had to deal with. But it's time to pull up those roots that are keeping you stuck. Come on. Those mindsets aren't serving you anymore. They're not true. It's time to replace them with God's truth. He loves you right where you're at. Isaiah 43.3 says, I paid a huge price for you. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. I'd trade creation just for you. Come on. The value of something is determined by the price that we pay for it. And God says, I would give all of creation for you. And he doesn't just say it. He demonstrated his love for us. And while we were still missing the mark, he sent Jesus to die for us. Come on. 
because we matter to him, because he loves us. And when we trust in Jesus, God puts his spirit in us. And where we go, he goes. He goes to work with us. He's home with us. He's at school. He's at church. Our feet walk his paths. Our lips speak his truth. Our tongues used for healing and not hurting. And our hands are used to serve people. It's not just us. He is with us. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the helper. He has what we need that we cannot get from our house. That's what, that we cannot get from ourselves. Helper in the Greek means that. He reminds us of our righteousness in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Because we mess up and we start to think, oh, I don't deserve God's love. And the Holy Spirit's like, you never deserved it. Come on. God loves you anyway. Come on. You're a Jesus person. Start living out who you are. God uses the same term for helper when he describes Eve, the first woman. It's Genesis 2.18. It says, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. It was not good for man to be alone. So God created woman to give man what he needed, but he could not get on his own. He did not have it within himself. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit reminds us of our righteousness in Jesus Wives, I believe that much of our role as helper is to remind our husbands of who they are in Jesus, is to build them up with our words, to encourage them, to speak life over them, to encourage them in a way that they cannot encourage themselves. I heard a talk once on how it's so easy for us to encourage little boys, and we tell them, oh, you're so handsome, and you're so strong, and you're so brave, and then somehow we lose that by the time those little boys grow up. But our husbands need that too. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands the foolish one tears hers down. And we have a choice. We can build up our husbands as God intended, or we can tear them down foolishly. Husbands, we're going to get to your part in a little bit. Don't worry, there's something for you too. God designed man and woman to come together in the covenant of marriage. Genesis 2:23. the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's getting a little hot in here still. <laughs> so God brings this woman to man, and she's naked, and he's like, Whoa, man, that's amazing. Thank you. One flesh here was understood by the Jewish people to mean a marriage covenant, an unconditional surrendering of rights, and an increase of responsibilities, a choice to serve each other. And the virgin bride would bleed on her wedding night, and that sealed the covenant. And this is the first covenant in the Bible. The last covenant is Jesus' blood poured out for us to restore our relationship with God. When you think about marriage that way, in terms of a covenant, in terms of what Jesus did for us, it's different. Sometimes people say marriage is just a piece of paper. It's not what God intended for it to be. It's a binding commitment to serve another person for life. Come on. It's unconditional, unwavering, unending. 
Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God designed man and woman to come together within the covenant of marriage in order to fill the earth. And he could have come up with any other plan. I mean, he could have made us just up here fully grown, and he could have made it like the Matrix where the babies are hooked up to a machine, or whatever happens in Avatar with the trees. I don't know. I've never seen that movie, but I've hear, heard bad things about it. But God chose to make our one flesh union produce new life. That's so beautiful. Now, that's not to say marriage or procreation is the goal of human existence. It's not. We all have a purpose, and we talked about it in week one of Roots. You can go listen to it if you haven't. If you're not married or you don't have kids, there's not something wrong with you. This is just part of what God tells us to do. And that's not just to say sex is just to make babies. It's not. It's a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. And that's the new root that we're putting down today. But before we get to that, there might be some old roots that we need to pull up together. So for me, growing up, my parents never talked about sex. I learned about it in health class in junior high school. I remember one time going to see the Titanic with my dad. And you know, there's like, uh, there's some parts in there, you guys, with Kate Winslet. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to die right now. I think I have to go to the bathroom. And since we never talked about sex, I thought it must be a dirty thing. It must be taboo. We should never talk about it. But that's a lie. I had to root that out, and I replaced that with the truth that the marriage bed is holy. Come on, it's a gift. I remember a song that was popular in high school by the Bloodhound Gang in 1999. You know the one, the music videos where they're wearing monkey costumes? It says, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. That's the part I didn't say when my children were in the room because I don't want them to repeat that. <laughs> but if you think about this song, it completely disconnects us from our humanity. And those are messages that are going in our brains all the time that we don't even think about. It takes away the truth that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of a holy God. Come on. Stuff like this, it tells us we have no value. Let's just have sex with anyone because we don't matter. We're no different than animals. And what we believe determines who we become. You are so much more than just an animal. I'm not down on culture. I knew every word to that song in high school, guys. I'm not saying, I'm just saying don't let culture define you when God's word has better for you. Come on. Maybe for you, maybe you were exposed to pornography as a child. Maybe you were exposed to other bodies before you understood what your body was. And I'm sorry for that. Maybe you have images burned in your brain. It's a counterfeit to what God has for you. 60% of America has been exposed to pornography at one point in their lives. And 25% of us still choose that route. It's time to pull it up. Think on what is pure. You get to choose your focus. You get to replace those things. When we're obsessed with a knockoff, we're missing out on the real thing. When I was in Disney a few weeks ago with my husband, we were in line, and I heard some 12-year-old boys 
They were talking about the lady running the ride. And they said, she's not good at her job because she's a woman, and women are only good for one thing. And I wanted to say, oh, really, boys? What's that one thing? Please educate me. It breaks my heart that that's all that they knew. They were taught, degrade women, see them as a body. Why do they think like that? Someone told them. Maybe you learned that you had to have sex in order to be valuable or that you need to conquer others in, in order to overcome being a victim in your past. Those are roots you can pull up and break the cycle in Jesus' name. Come on. That's not what God has for you. We often look at the Bible to see what we can't do with our bodies, but when we do that, we're missing the bigger, beautiful vision of God's passionate love for us. It's like driving down the road and always staring at the ditch, like, I don't want to go in the ditch, I don't want to go there. No, 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 focus on the drive in front of you. It's beautiful, come on. Then you won't even think about the ditch. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. It's in another translation. It says, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Sex is not just a physical fact. It's a spiritual mystery that points to a greater love. And the Old Testament is full of just God being a faithful husband to his church. And it's full of Israel being a cheating wife and God's people abandoning him over and over for idols and him wooing her back and loving her. But it never seems to work out because we're sinful people. We're people who miss the mark. We have gaps, we fall short, and sinful people can't live in the presence of a holy God until Jesus enters the picture. And he's the bridegroom who gave himself up for God's wandering bride, the church. There's not going to be human marriage in eternity, not because marriage isn't good, but because the need we have for it is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, we become one with him. In the same way, husband and wife come together as one. It's an act of self-giving, mutual love that points beyond ourselves. And it's so powerful that it requires the nurturing safeguards that are found in the covenant of marriage. Verse 17, since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. I love God's heart here. He's saying, don't pursue something that's going to make you lonely because it lacks commitment. It requires all of our being, our commitment, and it's not compartmentalized. It's a product of our whole lives. Sex is serving each other in a way that we best receive love from our spouse. It's not a transaction. It's a treasure. We're revealing to our spouse that they are loved and lovable, they're seen and known, they're naked and unashamed, just like God's original intent in the Garden of Eden. They knew no shame. They saw each other the way that God saw them, the way he sees us, not just looking at our outside like it's a separate part of us, but looking at our whole being, our heart. It's becoming part of another person. The best sex is an act of worship. Anything outside of that picture is incomplete. It's an imitation of what you were created to experience. There's more available to you. 
Verse 18 says, there's a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love. You are made for God-given love, for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. A lot of people focus on the sin part of that verse, and they feel condemned or offended. But it's not the point. And the point is not to take that verse and then judge other people especially people outside the church. You can't expect people who don't know Jesus to produce a fruit of a root of knowing him. Remember Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all equal in his eyes. The point is that your body is a sacred space where the Holy Spirit dwells. And when you know that you're sacred, you know that you're set free because Jesus gave his life for you, you see yourself differently. You won't settle for anything less than God-modeled love. Come on. And for all the places that we have fallen short, there is hope in Jesus. Come on, there's hope in him. And I think we're, gonna, we're about ready to get to a story for you. Can I see the next slide? Thank you so much. Um, my heart really is not that I would just preach a message to you, but that our stories would preach a message to you, that our stories, our testimony, that's how we overcome. And I just have a story from a family in the church, just of how God can take something that seems broken and hopeless and like it's at the end, and he redeems it, he heals it, he makes it whole. He takes our mistakes, and he does what we cannot do. So Please remain seated and check out this video. We were on the verge of separation, quickly headed to divorce. After a relationship of many years, fighting over the same issues, doing it our way, and coming up with absolutely nothing at the end. There was a, uh, a wedge being driven between our friendship and our marriage looking for ways to blame each other, never taking responsibility for the issues that we brought into the marriage, thinking that we had solved our past problems without God, without Jesus, and not realizing that all we really did was push them aside and then allow them to infiltrate our marriage, our family. And this process started less than a year ago when I went to a hope group, and for whatever reason, our past came out. Uh, it had the lies that we had kept for about 12 years of a very adulterous relationship filled with a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, ended with a lot of resentment towards each other, a lot of hatred towards each other, and anger all came to ahead and it was literally making me sick, physically ill, holding secrets and lies. I sought counsel here at Hope Church 
and did some work on myself and really wanted to do couples counseling. Approached Mike with it. But I resisted. And finally I did uh, agree to see Pastor Dave. And when I saw Pastor Dave, there were issues, um, deep-seated issues in my life that were brought up. Issues of childhood abuse, issues of unforgiveness. We have since learned that starting a, a new relationship with God and Jesus, first individually, and surrendering all of this to Him and realizing that this was His to take care of. And, you know, we had that grace and that mercy that we've been hearing about. And being able to grow and uproot all that anger and resentment and shame and guilt. And we have learned through God to start over. We are learning to be friends again, and we're learning to live as a united couple. We brought God into the house. We started praying as a couple. We pray as a family. And just having Him in everything we do really has blessed our lives. And that's the one thing that we agreed upon, despite the fact that we were living in a house divided, that we would break the cycle. I'm learning to like Mike again. <laughs> and I'm learning to like myself again. Now that we don't have a lot of anger every single day, it's nice to remember the things that brought us together in the first place. It's fun to remember and do those things that we love to do in the beginning that we stopped doing once everything started to infiltrate our daily lives. I love you. I love you too. I feel like we cracked the code. <laughs> Come on, thank you, Jesus. I love that story and I'm so proud of those guys. I love what God is doing with their love story and that's what he does when we trust our relationships to him. And in case you haven't noticed, there are no perfect people. We are just people of hope who say, God, I love you with my whole life. And I want to trust you more and more every day and become more like Jesus. So just in closing, we're going to look at Ephesians 5. It explains a little bit more of God's intention for our marriages. And then we're going to talk about singles. Verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands and wives are both called to submit to each other. And chauvinists and feminists, they do weird things with this verse. Don't get weird about it. What does submission mean? It means serving each other. It means putting each other first. It means honor each other, loving each other. The way we surrender to Jesus, we submit to our spouses too. Jesus first, and then our spouse. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. How do we submit to Jesus? That's how we submit to them. We love them. We trust them. We honor them. We respect them. We build them up. Wives aren't told to submit to their husbands because we're terrible leaders. 
We've all seen great women leaders in all arenas. We've seen terrible women leaders in arenas. We've seen great men leaders in all arenas. We've seen terrible male leaders. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not a point about our sex. Wives are told to submit to their husbands because the church submits to Jesus. And like we talked about earlier, the union of a husband and wife is a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. How did Jesus love us? He died for the church. That's the kind of sacrificial love that God calls husbands to. Jesus brings out the best in the church because he loves us unconditionally. Does he condemn us? No, he loves us. And it's his love that changes our lives. And husbands, it's the same with your wives. They need you to love them unconditionally. Love them like Jesus loves you. Let his love flow through you. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body as Christ does the church. We are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Husbands are told to give themselves up for their wives, not because they're less valuable than women, but because Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus loved the church by dying for her, by providing for all of her needs, by coming to serve her. And men and women have beautiful and necessary differences and roles in a marriage relationship. So that's the marrieds. What about the singles? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul said he wishes everyone could be single. Let's check it out. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler life in many ways. If you're married, don't say amen. Just let me keep reading. Celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of single life to some, the gift of married life to others. I love that both of them are a gift. And if you're married, he says, stay married. This is the master's command, not mine. So don't listen to this verse. And if you're married, be like, honey, Paul says it's better to be single, so I don't know. No, if you're married, stay married. But if you're single, enjoy the gift. I was talking to a single friend and they said, you know, sometimes we feel like singleness is the gift that no one wants. Like it's something that your crazy aunt brings at Christmas. But this season is a valuable gift if you'll receive it, if you'll embrace it. Don't listen to the lie that singleness means that you haven't been chosen. You've been chosen by God. Verse 32, I want you to live as free of complications as possible when you're unmarried. You're free to concentrate on simply pleasing the master. Marriage involves you and all the nuts and bolts of domestic life and in wanting to please your spouse, leading to so many more demands on your attention. 
the time and energy married people spend on caring for and nurturing each other, the unmarried can spend in becoming whole and holy instruments of God. I'm trying to be helpful and make it as easy as possible for you, not make things harder. All I want is for you to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the master without a lot of distractions. Paul's saying, orient your whole life around God without distraction. He says, you have an opportunity to become whole in Jesus and to be a holy instrument of him. If you're single, let Jesus love you. It's not a barrier. It's an opportunity to spend more time with him. And it's also important to have meaningful friendships in your singleness. Prioritize time with your friends. Make plans. Don't do life alone. There's so many verses in the Bible about friendships. Proverbs says, friends sharpen you as iron sharpens iron. Ecclesiastes says, friends lift you up when you fall down. First Thessalonians says, we can all build each other up. Not just wives building up husbands, but all people. Friendship isn't a lesser substitute for a spousal love. No, friendships are just as important for singles as a spouse is to those who are married. And like Paul, Jesus was single. A lot of people who changed the world in the Bible were single. If you're single, you're in good company. Jesus says the greatest kind of love is self-sacrificing friendship love. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus is talking about himself, but he's saying this is the best kind of love. Jesus was single, and he was fully man. He wasn't a eunuch. If you don't know what that means, you can look it up later. He wasn't deficient in any way. He had the same temptations. He had the same urges that we all have. And he was fully devoted to God. He had meaningful friendships. He had three close friends. He had Peter, James, and John. He cared about people with compassion. He cried for his friend Lazarus. He loved him so much. He calls us his friends. And he cares about you. He laid down his life for you. He said, the greatest love I give you. And if you feel like today, man, I've been missing out. Are there places you're like, I just, I think I need a do-over. The Bible says there's no condemnation in Jesus. He sets you free from the places that have held you back. He helps you pull up the roots that have been ingrained in you and replace them with what he says about you. He loves you the way that you were meant to be loved, unconditionally, wholly, completely. It's a love that you never experienced until you experience his love. It's the love that your soul has been longing for, that you were created for. He has more for you than what you've experienced in the past. 